Please listen carefully. Since Chinese users have to spoof their, their GPS coordinates, um, they kind of like show up in weird places. Like they're in China, but um, they spawn someplace in Japan to play. And in this case, some, some people were spawning in, in Yasukuni Shrine, which is a shrine in Tokyo. But it's basically devoted to Japan's war dead. This is the week that was at Global Voices, the podcast where we introduce you to people, places, and events from around the world that aren't getting the media coverage they deserve. And that was a sneak peek of what this episode has in store. I'm Lauren, news editor at Global Voices. I live in Bilbao, Spain. And I'm Sahar, managing editor at Global Voices. I live right outside of San Francisco. Global Voices is an international network of passionate, plugged-in people. Together, we've been building bridges of understanding, as we like to call them, through our digital reporting since 2005. Our 1,400 volunteer writers, editors, and translators cover stories from 167 countries and translate them into more than 30 languages. Pretty impressive, huh? The Week That Was podcast takes a look at some of the stories that have recently come out of our newsroom. This week, we'll be talking with three of our extraordinary editors about the politics of playing Pokemon Go in Iran, Japan, and China. You heard that right. The mobile phone game that everyone can't stop talking about has political consequences. But there's more happening in the world than just Pokemon Go. So we'll also take a look at two different developments related to free expression. One in Timur Lest, where a school is imposing a fine on students for speaking one of the country's official languages. And another in Mexico, where indigenous groups are getting their very own telecommunication network. But before we get to those stories, we're going to talk about the politics of playing Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go is a record-breaking augmented reality game that has captured the imaginations of millions of mobile users around the world. It's the latest release in the Japanese Pokemon video game series. How does it work? Well, Pokemon Go uses Google Maps data and your smartphone's camera to superimpose characters into your actual surroundings. As you walk around, your phone uses GPS to track your position in the world, and the game will let you know if you get close to one of the animated creatures. So say you're in a city park, and there's a Pokemon nearby. As you point your phone's camera, you'll be able to see the green grass, the trees, the benches, and passersby like normal, as if you were going to take a photo. But sitting somewhere in the middle of all that will be a Pokemon that you can then try to capture on your phone's screen. Pokemon Go was launched on Apple's App Store in select countries on July 6th. It was developed in partnership with Japan-based Nintendo and the Pokemon franchise, by Niantic Labs, which happens to be in my hood, San Francisco. The game is only available in certain places, but the craze has drawn in many players from all over the world, even Iran and China. Players there have to use virtual private networks or VPNs to download the game, and some even have to spoof their GPS location to play it. More on that in a minute. First, let's introduce our guests for the episode. They are on opposite ends of the world. One is ready to go to sleep, one just woke up, and one falls somewhere in the middle. First up, Oiwan Lam, our Northeast Asia editor, joins us from Hong Kong, where it is super late now. Hi, Oiwan. Hi. Oiwan has been a part of the GV community for over a decade and has reported thousands of stories for us. She is one of the founders of InMediaHK.net, 
an independent citizen media platform in Hong Kong, and she teaches a new media course at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And then we have Masa Ali Mardani, our Iran editor, who's joining us from Toronto. Hi, Masa. Hi. Good to be here. Masa has been part of our community since 2013 and has written over a hundred stories about censorship and the intersection of technology and rights in Iran. She is Iranian Canadian and just wrapped up her research masters at the University of Amsterdam with a focus on internet in Iran. Masa is also a researcher for the University of Amsterdam's impressive Data Active Research Collective. And we're joined by another Canadian, but one closer to the Pacific. Nevin Thompson is based in Vancouver. Nevin was one of GB's earliest contributors and has been our Japan editor since 2014. He's a translator, copywriter, social media whiz, and journalist who spends about three months each year with his family in a small city on the Japan seacoast. Thanks for joining us so early in the morning, Nevin. Sure. So I wanted to ask, who here has actually played Pokemon Go? I haven't. Oh, I have. I've been playing a little bit, oddly enough. I uh, took I my call. son out uh, last night. Uh, he doesn't have a data connection on his iPod, so he used my phone and we looked for Pokemon. How fun! I caught Caratel uh, yesterday. Ooh! <laughs> I'm actually really tempted to. One of these days, it's going to happen. Yeah, I was a little bit against Pokemon because I thought it was a very strange craze that was taking over the world. But then a friend found. A Persian、uh, Pokemon somewhere and sent it to me, and I got intrigued and downloaded it and started playing. So, of all of us, is Masa the only one who has it on his or her phone? I don't have it, for example, but I have tried it on my partner's phone. Oh, I also try it on my partner's phone. Yeah, I don't have those, either. Those partners are good. Sorry, Nevin. Skepticals, <laughs> Sorry, what did you say, Nevin? Oh, I just it, yeah, just on my son's iPod.、Uh, I probably. Yeah, I shouldn't.、Uh, I would never be tempted to try because it. it probably would consume my life.、Uh, <laughs> better to just stay away. But yeah, I, I, I saw it. I've seen it. Yeah, it took up、um, a huge chunk of my day when I first got it because I was really intrigued by the concept. So I actually went out with the purpose of finding Pokemon's. But then I realized how much of my data and battery it was eating up. So now I just have it on a restricted、um, data connection on my phone. So I'm not tempted to use up data for no reason. So it's probably smarter not to have it. Is the charm of it wearing off at all? Yeah, I mean, it was just fascinating on the first day because、uh, I thought it was really cool that they literally had thought of every single neighborhood. Like just down my street, there was a Poke Stop, so and they knew the name of the park and everything. So the attention to detail on a global scale, I think, is really impressive and really cool to think that there's developers sitting in San Francisco who thought about your street corner. So I think that was the initial charm and amusement of it. Because at first, when I heard about it, I thought it was this weird trend. But then when I realized what it was, I was like, oh, this is quite an impressive global feat of a game. I was going to say that、um, I think also it's a complicated game, and、uh, people are you know learning more and more how to play it. So. I don't see like my son, for example. I don't see him stopping playing it anytime soon because as he continues to master the, the game and be able to do different things, so、uh, yeah, it's all he wants to do. <laughs> and、uh, yeah, it's kind of cool because、uh, he's now in his his, his mid teens, and、uh, you know, I mean, at that, that age, you know, you don't want to hang out with your parents. But you know, last night we we're like walking around the park because he, he needs my、uh, 
my data on my phone to, to find some really hard to find ones. So that was kind of cool too. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't see it stopping anytime soon, this, uh, this craze. Nevin, a question for you. So your son is half Japanese, half Canadian, and this game has its origins in, in Japanese characters. Do you feel like um, it's resonating in a, in a different kind of way with him than it would with other kids? It's hard to say. I mean, uh, I was thinking a lot about the Japanese connection and, and, and just observing the differences between how Japan approaches the game and how it's, it's appro- how people think about it here. I think for my son, though, it's like it's just like a cool game that everybody's doing and he wants to do. And, and I think in Japan, if, if he was in Japan, it might be harder for him to do it because while well, kid, kids have iPods and stuff like that his age, not as many of his friends in Japan would have a, a, a data-connected phone. Because uh, it's just not something that you get when you're 13. He, he doesn't have one either, but he has an iPod. None of his friends do. So I kind of wonder how how younger kids or younger teens would play it in Japan. As well, like in in Canada, there's a lot of um, disapproval about this game. Like there'll be editorials in the paper saying it's a waste of time, and you guys are all staring at your screen and blah blah blah. Uh, whereas in Japan, um, from what I've seen, that doesn't really happen. Where people it's just sort of one of those things. Like people are more uh, open to playfulness and and the whimsical nature of Pokemon and and that sort of thing. And so even if you're an adult, there's more of a sense of fun with this sort of stuff. And uh, those are sort of the kind of the big differences I've I've noticed. This is here. There's more lip pursing, disapproval, all those nerds on their phones. And in Japan, it seems just it's something that people do. And it's if you don't like it, well, that's no big deal. You don't have to play it. But my son, you know, I think. Uh, yeah, I think he, he just likes playing it because it's like everybody else is doing it. He's at that age. If you don't like it, don't play it. But that isn't the condition in other parts of the world. I think this is a good time to kind of um, segue into Iran. What do you think, Lauren? Sounds good to me. Masa, how have people in Iran, which is a country with an incredibly restricted internet environment, how have people there been reacting to Pokemon Go? Uh, well, when I first uh, wrote the article for GV, it was the 21st, so it was, I think, well, it was last week. What I sort of talked about was how authorities were reacting to it, and the gaming authority in Iran did this really funny uh, interview with one of the state-affiliated news agencies, where while he was doing the interview, he's like, hold on a second, let me download it, let me get on my VPN and download it. Let's hit pause for just a quick second and explain what a VPN is for those who aren't sure. A VPN, or Virtual Private Network, creates a tunnel-like connection that allows its user to access a network in a different geographic location. So for example, a person in Iran could use a VPN to connect to a network in Canada. This allows them to bypass Iranian sensors and use the internet as if they were in Canada. It's an important tool for people who live in countries whose governments restrict access to the internet. Now, back to Masa. So that was kind of the first point, which is you had to get on a VPN to download it because it wasn't available to Iranians. Because even on, um, even in Iran, if you're like on the Apple App Store, you have to say that you're in a different country in order to access a lot of the content. So Iranians already naturally had access to the circumvention tools uh, that they typically need to access most um, applications and web pages because of the censorship. So that's how they were getting it in the first place. And um, the gaming authority kind of uh, indicated that 
they wouldn't necessarily grant permission, official permission for Pokemon to operate because they would have to abide by their rules, which was to hold the servers inside of the country and um, to cooperate with the government in terms of where the locations would be. But he kind of acknowledged that he knew this wouldn't happen, so it really wouldn't make a difference either way because people would have to be accessing it through VPNs either way. But there were uh, there was news and discussions on the 25th of July where people stated, "Oh, it's officially been blocked." Like after we download it through the VPN, if we just if they decided to disable the VPN, they could still access Pokemon. But then they realized that it's officially been censored in the country. I don't think that will really make a difference, to be honest, because um, VPNs are ubiquitous in Iran, anyways. And I I don't think it's necessarily a point of big concern for the Iranian government because there are games like 1979, the Iranian Revolution, which takes uh, a stance against the government in a way of you know, highlighting the narrative of the revolution in a negative way. But this doesn't necessarily do anything. I mean, the, the biggest danger is what the gaming authority mentioned, which is if there are Pokestops and locations in the game that go against um, national security, like if it's a military base or something like that, that they don't want normal people to go to. In China, the situation is similar but slightly different because there are concerns that this could be this game could be a national security threat and it's bought in all kinds of nationalistic sentiments. Um, but before we get to that, Oiwan, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the obstacles Chinese users are jumping to play the game? Because the game is technically unavailable in um, China's app store. Yeah, uh, it's similar to Iran. First, they have to get a VPN to download the game. And some of them, they have to use the VPN to register a Google account uh, in order to register to a, a, a Apple ID, which is overseas, based overseas. So access is similar to Iran. But in, in the gaming community uh, of China, most of the gamer actually, they quite knowledgeable of climbing over the wall. It means using VPN to uh, circumvent the censor because the governments have started to block uh, many of the popular online games. So it's not that difficult for them to tackle with the technical aspect. But now they are facing another problem is uh, more political because the game, this uh, Pokemon Go, is both Japanese and American affiliated. Yeah, and in the uh, geopolitics, uh, China and Japan, they had this historical conflict. And then every time when there is national protest in China, is related with Japan and US. Like the reason anti-KFC is related with the South Sea conflict. Just some quick background here. On July 12th, an international tribunal rejected China's extensive territorial claims in the South China Sea. Many in China think that the U.S. was partly responsible for the embarrassing ruling. Chinese people in at least a dozen cities protested in front of KFC restaurants recently because, well, you know, the good old fried chicken franchise is seen as representing U.S. interests. But it also kind of correlated with the East China Sea or, or, or the Diaoyutai Islands conflict. And the Diaoyu Islands, also known as the Sengaku Islands, are an archipelago in the East China Sea. Both China and Japan say the islands belong to them. So uh, there's this uh, political background, like uh, in the anti-KFC protests, the 
online uh, nationalistic netizens, they will perform patriot act by smashing the iPod or uh, by protest slogan that that are directed against uh, Japan or U.S. and Vietnam or other countries. So. With this kind of politics, uh, playing Pokemon openly or publicly, it might uh, kind of uh, create a kind of not only psychological threat but also a kind of real threat because you have to play it in the street or you have to if you play it, you have to uh, kind of share it with your friends. So it's very easy for people to spot that you are using it, and then they may uh, label such game as a kind of unpatriotic, and some uh, gamers, when they spoon their location to Japan, they mm -hmm. are also doing protests in uh, protest act through the game. Well, speaking of Japan, let's pivot to that point. Nevin, how are Japanese users handling this invasion and additional pressure that Chinese players are putting on Pokemon Go? You mentioned in the story you wrote for Global Voices about a about a shrine that had been taken over, and it was a bit of a sensitive topic. Yeah, so like to recap, since Chinese users have to spoof their, their GPS coordinates, um, they kind of like show up in weird places. Like they're in China, but um, they spawn someplace in Japan to play. And in this case, some, some people were spawning in, in Yasukuni Shrine, which is a shrine in Tokyo. But it's basically devoted to Japan's war dead. And, and all, all the Japanese prime ministers go there and uh, pray to the war dead, some of whom include Class A war criminals. Uh, and, and so whenever, they, whenever politicians, Japanese politicians do that, apparently, why well, would know more than I would, of course, uh, it really pisses off people in China, like really. Uh, and so these people are spawning, these Chinese folks are spawning in Yasukuni Shrine, and then like they put, <laughs> I guess, like, you know, you can, you can spawn your own Pokemon there or place your own Pokemon there. So they, 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 they put a Pokemon there that's called China is Great, which is hilarious, I think. But in, in terms of, of how Japanese people are, are reacting to it, or Japanese players, uh, I, I think it would just be annoyance. Like, I'm not sure how many people are going to Yasukuni Shrine to play Pokemon. So I, I think there's always going to be, like, a fringe uh, netizen group or whatever. If the fringe netizens in, in, in Japan are going to be pissed off about China. It's it's kind of predictable. It's it's really disgusting. I really I, I just uh, I feel depressed if I ever like read those uh, forums and Twitter feeds or whatever. It's like oh god. So there's going to be those folks, but I think generally speaking, um, nobody's going to Yasukuni Shrine to play Pokemon. And for another thing, a lot of the shrines in Japan are are um, banning Pokemon Go. Uh, you're not allowed to play it there on on a shrine, uh, especially the big ones like Yasukuni and and uh, Izumo and uh, Issei. These like really like these big state sponsored, basically state sponsored shrines. You, you can't play them there anyway. Um, so I think there'll be people who are pissed off about it. People who are annoyed. Um, but I think most people would never notice. I'm not even sure where the other uh, Chinese spawning sites are. Anyways, um, I mean, I think I think the main problem in Japan with Pokemon Go is that like, everybody's playing it in the same place. So if you go to like um, there's a specific uh, park in, in Shinjuku, and, and which is a real hot spot for them. And there's like thousands of people playing Pokemon Go there, um, not and it's probably annoying for people who are not playing. But also, like I noticed last night when I was playing with my son, we went to our central park and there's like tons of people playing. And then the thing it doesn't work because there's so many people there that the there's lag, the GPS doesn't work. It's because the 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 system's overloaded. 
So I kind of wonder about the the user experience. But as far as is the the China the China stuff, there's always going to be that sort of battle between the, the Japanese netizens and the Chinese ones. But sort of like a fringe almost. Um, there'll always be that battle. But I think for most regular people, you know, are probably more concerned about lag because <laughs> there's all these Japanese people playing it in these specific hotspots. It's always about the internet connection. Is it is it is it strong enough? Do we have enough data? <laughs> <laughs> sort of boils down to basic human needs. <laughs> um, so Masa, you, you started talking a bit about this and we wanted to kind of um, uh, parse it a little bit more. Iranian authorities have also commented on the game. Could you tell us more about what is going on there? Well, it's not so much the authorities have, who have really gone onto it. It's the yeah. National Foundation for Gaming that has commented on it and they are... Um, I mean, they are a government body and they've been responsible for the censorship of other games in the past. They said that they had actually spoken to the developers of the game, but when they expressed their concerns, they didn't say that they had expressed their demands from the developers. So I think authorities don't think it's necessary to um, place these restrictions because there are restrictions on the sides of the Western sources of these technologies in the first place. So there's this kind of, um, I think there's a little bit of ambivalence towards it at the moment, um, but they felt the need to comment just because it's so huge and it's such a phenomenon that it's hard not to talk about it. From what I've been following, I haven't seen any controversial pokey stops. It seems pretty It seems pretty uh, neutral at the moment. People are just posting about funny places they're finding their Pokemons and what it's like to find a Pokemon on a famous mosque or something like that. So it's definitely not taking such a political dimension. I know in terms of the diet dialogue uh, created around it in Iranian media it sparked a lot of a lot of discussions but a lot of that is also being sort of recycled and translated into the Persian language from abroad like the really infamous photos of the Syrian children holding the Pokemon kind of appealing to audiences and the fact that uh, people aren't really paying attention to their plight but they're paying attention to Pokemon and so Persian media started talking about that in that regard and there's uh, something else that was trending amongst Iranians on Twitter and on Telegram was uh, the video of the State Department spokesperson during a press conference calling out a journalist for playing Pokemon in the middle of his press conference. So these yeah, are the that trended everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So these are the things that are uh, grabbing attention. Um, there was one interesting interview with a notable game developer, which was he said that the appeal of the game and the way that it's structured is going to garner a lot of fans and a lot of users in Iran, but he also noted that Pokemon has never really been um, well-known or well-liked in Iran. And I know this because when, when I was in elementary school and I would spend my summers in Iran, I remember that Pokemon would like, a huge deal in school and amongst my peers and then I would go to Iran and there was nothing so it was like really being transported to different worlds in terms of um, the fades and the crazes and Pokemon never really had that foothold that it had uh, maybe here in Canada so it, in that way it might it hasn't I don't think it's going to 
necessarily become that huge because it doesn't have that sort of generational draw because you know amongst like my generation uh, people who are in their late 20s who are in their 30s they, they remember Pokemon as part of their childhood so that's why there are so many adult users I, I feel like you know in different countries like Canada and the US and Europe. Back to Oiwan you mentioned the risk that playing Pokemon Go out in the open amidst this you know wave of nationalistic sentiment in China carries. But there are other risks too. Could you explain that a little more? There is a conspiracy uh, theory circulating online saying that the technology, the GPS technology used in the Pokemon is uh, kind of coming from CIA-related agents. In China, the game, the Pokemon game uh, is not uh, launched yet. Uh, the game is still applying for a license to be put on the Apple store. So a large part of China cannot play the game. I mean, even if they download the game, they have to spoon the location to other regions like uh, Australia, Japan, or US. But in Xinjiang and also northeast part of, of China, where the population is less dense, the player, they can turn on their GPS and then they can locate character. In, in, in this region and they can stop playing the game like all other places where Pokemon has been launched. The fact that uh, these two regions is not locked for using the or, or for, for playing the game itself is becoming a conspiracy theory. So the conspiracy is that why the game developer they do not lock this region and they were saying that these are sensitive regions, these are regions with uh, military organization, and some even suggest that uh, some of the Pokemon characters are located at the military uh, base, but I searched around and I didn't see anyone uh, actually uh, saying that they, they found Pokemon character in military, so I don't know uh, where exactly is the source of information? So, the conspiracy theory is uh, is not coming from official short source, but it's been circulating by some uh, party-related organization like the Communist Youth Lit. Yeah, this one of the political pressures that the game community is facing. And actually, uh, it's it's a kind of fun because some. Gamer, they were saying that they will travel to uh, Dongbei, to northeast uh, China, to to play the game. And and there's a joke saying that Dongbei will uh, can promote local tourism because of Pokemon, because they can actually play the game there. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's very difficult for people to spoon the location. Because if you are not familiar with Japan, you spoon the location, but you don't know where you should go. So usually they just pick up spot, the most uh, popular touristic uh, spot. But uh, if you you are not familiar with the place, you don't know where to go to, to find this uh, Pokemon center. Yeah, um, all of you have played the game, some of you a little more than others. But do you have any favorite Pokemon Go characters? I mean, I mean there's yeah. one <laughs> character which is like a pigeon. <laughs> yeah, I forgot the name. Yeah, but I caught uh, two pigeon. Pidgey. I think it's Pidgey. I've seen that one. So cute. <laughs> Masa, you mentioned a Persian character. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the reason why I started playing because I, I had a strong dislike for it. And then 
my friend was walking in the middle of the night and suddenly like a wild person appeared on the screen and he thought it was funny and sent it to me. But that one wild um, Persian Pokemon is very rare, apparently. It, it w- I haven't heard of anyone else who's found it. Nevin, any deep thoughts from you? No, because this man, like, I'm a parent, and this is, like, it just means money. So uh, my kids are going to want this stuff, and i got to shell out. Uh, we're already dealing with something else called Yokai Watch, which is, like, another sort of character-based um, with our younger son, and we got the underwear, and chopsticks, pencil cases, books, toys. I hear you. I'm going through the same thing with my daughter, with My Little Ponies. It's not fun. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Um, Thank you, Nevin, Masa, and Oyuan for joining us. Hola, amigos. That's Hello, Friends in Portuguese. I'm Manuel, Global Voices Portuguese Language Editor. Are you liking this podcast? You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe, give us an upvote, or leave us a comment. Obrigado. Thank you. There's much more you can do with a mobile phone than just play Pokemon Go. For indigenous communities in Mexico, for instance, Access to mobile phone and internet service is vital for their efforts to promote and preserve their native languages, cultures, and knowledge. But telecoms companies don't often have a reputation for altruism, and profits usually drive the decision to provide or deny service. This can lead to some communities essentially being cut off. That's what happened to the town of Villa Talea de Castro. Before 2013, the community of 2,500 residents relied on high-cost landline phone booths because the country's large mobile phone companies repeatedly refused to provide them with service. Finally, the community sought out the help of an NGO and just installed their own local mobile network, with prices up to 98% less than what the companies offered. That community's initiative was the beginning of a movement that recently made history. On July 5th, Mexico's Federal Institute of Telecommunications, for the first time, granted two licenses to operate a telecommunications network for social, indigenous use. That means that members of the Mije, Mixteco, and Zapateco people will soon have their own network. This will allow at least 356 municipalities across five states to access mobile phone services and the internet. Pretty extraordinary. Eric Huerta is a consultant for the newly licensed Indigenous Community Telecommunications Organization and a member of the Federal Institute of Telecommunications Advisory Council. He honored the tireless efforts of Mexico's indigenous communities that led to this moment. Quote, This historic act is just one small step towards a dream that started to take place many years ago and that is created one day at a time in the indigenous communities in our country. Rising Voices, which is a Global Voices project that helps spread citizen media to places that don't normally have access to it, actually plays a small role in this story. After Biatalea de Castro paved the way by installing their own mobile network, the local radio station teamed up with an NGO called Rizomatica to train residents to become community news gatherers. The station collected their reports, synthesized them, and sent them out to residents in twice-daily SMS messages something that wouldn't have been possible without mobile phone service. 
Rising Voices helps support their citizen journalism effort with a small grant. This story was originally reported on the Global Voices website by Giovanna Salazar. Kamusta? That's how are you in Tagalog. I am Mong, Southeast Asia editor for Global Voices. Want to read more about the stories we mentioned in this podcast? You'll find them and more on our website, globalvoices.org, on Twitter, at Global Voices, and on facebook.com slash globalvoicesonline. Let's move 14,000 kilometers away to Timur-Leste. This Southeast Asian nation has two official languages, Tetum and Portuguese. It's been this way since 2002 when Timor-Leste gained independence from Indonesia. That's why one school's plan to impose a dollar fine on students who speak any other language besides Portuguese while on school grounds is so controversial. Effectively, this rule means students are banned from speaking Tetum even though the country's constitution says Tetum not only is an official language, but also, quote, that it shall be valued and developed by the state. The director of Fatumeta Basic School in capital city Dili spoke to local newspaper Temur Post about the decision. She said that students who did not speak Portuguese are better off remaining silent. She emphasized that parents agreed to the rule and justified imposing the fine in order to help students speak more Portuguese. This story that we're narrating right now was originally reported on the Global Voices website by Dalia Kia Killer. It is true that the number of people who speak Portuguese in Timor-Leste is low. Studies show that only 15% of the population have a command of it. But linguistically, people from Timor-Leste aren't limited to Portuguese or even Tedim. In addition to Indonesian, about 20 different languages and dialects are spoken in the country. Timor-Leste's Goodwill Ambassador for Education, Kirsty Sword Guzmao, told Global Voices that she thinks the $1 fine violates the country's law on basic education curriculum. That law requires that the first half of primary school dedicate more hours to Tetum than Portuguese, and the second half give the two languages an equal number of hours. Kirsty said she will be referring the matter to the Deputy Minister for Basic Education for review. Global Voices also spoke to João Paulo Esperança, a Portuguese linguist who has lived in Dili for many years. Esperanza offered some context. He said the official language in schools of the past was Portuguese, and then Indonesian after the invasion. School officials employed corporal punishment then against students who spoke any other language. He thinks the fine is a similar punishment, but in an era where physically punishing students is no longer acceptable. He also pointed out that language immersion schools are becoming popular among parents who can afford it. Upper-class families in Dili are sending their children to English immersion schools, for example, he mentioned, when the spots in Portuguese ones fill up. So the Fatumeta Basic School's decision to promote Portuguese with a fine might have something to do with this trend. Some worry that if a student's comprehension of Portuguese is limited, then they might miss out on important lessons taught in that language. And others say there's a big question that must be answered here. Does this $1 fine violate students' right to express themselves? And that's it for this episode. This is Lauren. And Sahar. 
The fascinating work of all of our Global Voices authors, translators, and editors made this episode possible. So big thank you to all of you out there. If you like what you heard, don't forget to share this episode with your friends on Facebook and Twitter. In this episode, we featured Creative Commons licensed music from the Free Music Archive, including Please Listen Carefully by Jazzer, Parade Shoes by Blue Dot Sessions, Mobile, also by Blue Dot Sessions, Falcon Hood by Pottington Bear, and Another Brick in the Wall Live by Montana Skies. Thanks for tuning in to the week that was at Global Voices. We'll be taking a slightly longer break in between episodes this time, but you can expect to hear our voices again in three weeks. In the meantime, you can catch up on our last 10 episodes if you haven't already. Happy listening!